Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show, and it's been a long time coming, but uh, it's an honor to introduce to the program really a decorated guitarist and you know somebody who has played with a lot of luminary cats and collaborates a lot with his wife and plays with people, his elders and his peers, people that are younger than him, and he's really become sort of a, a link in the chain and the lineage of, you know, modern alternative country music and the like. Um, Chris Masterson, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks, man. I'm glad we could finally make this happen. I'm Me too, it was man. So hard to pin down. No, it's an honor, man. Uh, you know, I, I, the floor is yours. Uh, I, I I work at a nonprofit uh, part time, and uh, my boss <clears throat> consistently plays neo country worship cheese music. I don't know how how else to say it. It's just they've been playing the same regurgitated stuff for over a year on these, you know, cumulus stations. And I'm not railing against that, but, you know, that to me is like some sort of new country. And I just want you to talk as best you can about what alternative country music is. All right. Um, and that almost feels like a broad question, but let's go. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think to start when you were talking about that, I mean, I think I could almost say that every genre has sort of been diluted or homogenized into something different than maybe what it was that we idolized about it. I mean, from, you know, punk rock to to R&B, you know, when I think R&B, I think like Hank Ballard in the Midnight. Absolutely. But, uh, you're right. You're uh, right. Yeah. Um, you could say that in blues, you know, from, you know, when I think about blues, I'm whether it's Frankie Lee Sims or Lightning Hopkins or up to, you know, Buddy Guy and Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf. And, you know, now we have sort of, you know, the, the blues rock thing, which is, it's cool, but it's, yeah. so I, I don't know. I've been so, but I could, I, I could think about that in any genre, sort of evolution and change. Um, Jazz is the same way. I mean, same, absolutely. Absolutely. no, you're nailing it. But I mean, in terms of what you what is, I mean, because what I'm hearing at work and what I've heard for the last year is like, I don't know, man, like the messages are so weird and they're, it, a lot of it is related to, you know, just sort of like there's just one way to fit into something. It, it just, you know, like, and, and I, and I, and I sort of understand that word alternative, but it does, labels are just so weird and I just, I kind of wanted you to talk about like the music that you play, Steve Earle or whoever did your own stuff. What makes it alternative? You know, is it not? Do you, is there instrumental improvisation? Do you, uh, you know, do you leave the head of the tune? I mean, I, and I'm, I'm always just trying to. I'm curious about that term because what if I was listening to your kind of music on the radio, it wouldn't piss me off so much. Well, fair enough, and thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. You know, it's, I guess, it, but even that term just becomes a sort of another shoebox to put something in. You know, I, I, I don't know who coined, you know, alternative country or y'alternative or <laughs> any of that stuff. Right. Um, you know, I always just, I always just loved it. I mean, I grew, I was born in Louisiana. I grew up in, in uh, you know, so moved to Houston when I was three. 
And I was just surrounded by it. I got to go see great blues growing up. Uh, I'd see Albert Collins every Christmas at this venue, Rockefeller. Oh, and, that is fantastic. And and then there was, you know, all there was all these, you know, Wayne Bennett, uh, who played guitar with Bobby Blue Bland, um, Big Walter Price, Joe Guitar Hughes. I, I can think I could rattle off so many. Uh, Jimmy T. Ninety Nine Nelson. So part of me had this sort of blues traditional blues upbringing and then then there was always country music my dad when he got out of the navy he's from out here in california um when he got out of the navy he was working as a roughneck and living in bakersfield and it it um placed him in the bars like right when like he would see merle haggard out at the bars absolutely man oildale man i know it well i know it well yeah. They weren't uh, they weren't buds, but they probably sat at the same bar <laughs> together a few times. But so so I had this mix of blues and country. You know, picture me as this kid. I'm 45, but I had you know I'd go see Wayne Bennett play, and I loved T Bone Walker. I'd go to country gigs and see songwriters play with my mom. So I had the you know like the towns thing and all. I had the folk and the country and the blues, and then then I liked Kiss. Absolutely, like, so, yeah. Totally. I sort of had it all. Um, and then, you know, so, and then uh, I moved out here to, to L.A. when I was 17. And about that time, um, you know, shortly after moving out here, I met Bill Bateman from the Blasters, which kind of, I started to meet a lot of people that I really idolized here in Hollywood. And I learned a lot of what to do and, and what not to do. Um and then you know when you're when you're adjacent to Dave Alvin and you hear how he speaks of American music, um, that's really how I just started to think about music. And you know, you look at uh, a picture of Hank Williams and a picture of Robert Johnson, and save for skin color, there's so many parallels. It's you know, it's the old three chords and the truth. And um, so I don't, I don't, you know, as far as labels go, getting back to your initial question, uh, you know, I don't know that i um, i'm really qualified to do that i mean i just i play music um if it goes into some kind of shoebox and some kind of fan gets into it that's cool but i'm I'm not really in the outcomes business absolutely i just to me i'm just when i hear uh i mean that that's again it's just it's what it says on your you look you you look you look yourself up on wikipedia or something and you know it says alternative and I'm like an alternative to what? Some sort of for, exactly. some sort of formula trip, pop, country. I, I I'm still. I listen to this stuff every day, and it's. I mean, not to mention it's just mind numbing. It's that. Well, it also speaks to just how. Um, I mean, just the idea that you know, I don't know when you know we're, we're roughly the same age, but there was this period of time when especially early FM when, you know, guy, you would play the entire side of an album and now you just get, you know, pummeled with just this sort of formula trip. And I just wonder, like, in your music, how do you stay, how do you continue to get off on the music you play so that it doesn't become a formula trip? And I, I, I think it comes from a really honest place. I mean, I... I'm obviously Southern, but I'm an Anglophile too. I always, the elevator pitch on that is like, I love Ray Davies as much as I love Ray Price. No, I dig, bro. I, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So that, like, and I, and I think, man, it, it, it's a really weird time in music right now. And I think it's a weird time in everything. Um, it is. Yeah. But, 
you know, when you get down to creating art and trying to make music that makes you happy and, and hopefully a fan happy, there's there's something that happens. And, you know, we're, you know, pre-pandemic, the Mastersons had come off of, you know, four record cycles. Basically, you know, 18, make a record, tour at 18 months, make the next record, tour at 18 months. And when you have people around you, like label people and, and stuff like that, you know, you see how things could turn into art by committee. And, <laughs> but, you know, all my heroes were just sort of my heroes. And a lot of them, there was no template for what they did. Right. Um, so I've, I've really been focusing on, you know, creating art without an outcome in mind. An outcome, an outcome can mean like, uh, expectations or what, give an yes, example. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Like, because it's, it's, it happens. You're like, we got to get, you know, hopefully this record will make it on the charts. Hopefully this will do such and such. Hopefully, you know, Tiny Desk will call. Hopefully, like everybody else. And I know, I mean, I, I'll put, I would put expectations on myself. I used to get really stressed out about that stuff. And I'm really entering a place in life where I'm trying to keep up, like, uh, a teenage enthusiasm for my guitar, and for music and uh, you know, in creating in any form. And um, I, I think it, it's easier to do if you get, if you turn the, the internet off and get off the phone and, and just, and make shit. Uh, well, you know, and that would have, that was pretty easy for us for, and I always feel very grateful that our generation uh, really had to use their imaginations for, uh, for me, at least 20 plus years of my life. I mean, we, you know, we had dial up modem internet, at, you know, in college and stuff, but for the most part, you just had to find your fantasy world, improvise, be outside, be with kids and just interact. And, and I mean, that's a whole different sort of enchilada, but, um, if you like, so like if you went to your company and, and you know, you made two records, um, uh, make a record, tour it, make a record, tour it. And then all of a sudden you were like, hey guys, we got a bunch of new tunes, but before we go in the studio, we want to road test these songs because then they're going to take on a life of their own. So we're going to introduce Cats to new tunes. And then after the touring, we're going to go into the studio. That, I mean... Oh, oh dude, that's such a great idea. I was, I was talking <laughs> before we... Before we made uh, No Time for Love Songs, mm. so this would have been in 2019, we we did this little gig somewhere in L.A. I'm spacing on it. But um, our friend Sean Watkins was there. And, you know, he was Watkins Family Hour in Nickel Creek. And, uh. and it was, this was an evening of music where we all played new tunes that no one had heard. That was the concept of the gig. And and Sean and I were talking after the gig, and he, and he said something to it to that you know it was like we do this backwards we should write the songs go play them for a year and a half and then go record totally them. man i mean because dude that songs, is not get legs like we'll that's like right Eleanor and i will you know do our best and and i think make some pretty cool music but then you go tour it and then you find spots for dynamics or you're like oh this solo can stretch out or Maybe we even change a key on something, and and that's all great. But then you know, so sometimes you hear something, and you're like, man, I wish we would would have had that gag, you know, a year ago. I mean, basically, is that something that that uh, you have the flexibility? I mean, because first of all, that's a playbook out of. <clears throat> I mean, I, I, you know, Pat Metheny did that with, with one of his albums, and the, I mean, the Grateful Dead didn't go in the studio for seven years. I mean, they were they were playing these songs. 
like Touch of Grey on the bandstand for five years before they got in the studio. Now, I'm not saying right. five years, but if you if you were, do you have that flexibility with the sort of art by committee that you just mentioned, where you could say, "Hey guys, you know, the, we want to have this these songs feel like living, breathing organisms before we go in the studio." Is that something that you could actually go to, and 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 they would and. And, and the management would be cool with it? I mean, or do they want to keep it in this sort of cookie cutter, make the record, go? Because, I mean, I see, and, and here's the thing. You're lucky. Luck is, luck is uh, you know, the residue of design, and it's good to be lucky. But, I mean, there's so many cats who just make record after record after record, and they don't have that ability, that touring circuit apparatus. So, essentially, the, the songs just atrophy. And then you just, you're basically just in this, Continuum, continuum of recording music that never really takes on a life of its own. So I, I just wonder how much flexibility you have uh, in terms, you know, in terms I of. Think a good, I think a good amount. I mean, I, I, and I have to say, I, I'm not trying to be the guy that's complaining about their label and their manager no, by any no. means. I mean, I've never felt like I've never had an A and R guy, you know, super up my ass about anything. You know, we we. When we started our band, The Masters, it was so weird because I, 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 and I've got to say, I love playing guitar for people. Like, I, I really enjoy that sort of co-pilot, side person role. Like, I, when I'm playing guitar in a gig, I'm not standing on stage wishing I was center stage. Like, right, I, really I dig. enjoy being a slave to the song. I, I mean, if it's a good song. <laughs> but... Um, so when we started our band, it was like, I mean, I enjoy singing with my wife very much, but, you know, basically this was 2010, um, we were getting ready to join Steve Earle's band, and he said, I'm going to feature you on the show, you better have a record. <laughs> and so that was, you know, and talk about, you know, that, you know, uh, being the uh, the inspiration or the, the orders or, you know, I mean, it, it was like, okay, and... Um, so then once we got into that, we made that first record on our own. We produced it ourselves. Um, I don't even think I called myself a producer on it. I mean, it was we kind of did it as a collective and we, we put it out and then and then New West picked it up and and and, you know, signed us and, uh, on a record we'd already been selling for a year. So it was, you know, it, it was pretty easy in a way. Sure. Um, that is a very interesting. I didn't know that. That's remarkable. I know. I was talking. I was talking to a friend one time. He's just like, and, and I was stressed about something. He's like, "Man, outside looking in, it looks like it looks like you make it. So, it seems easy." And I was like, "Well, <laughs> no. I mean, it's, it's 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 all relative." But uh, so, w when you look back on that time when you did produce, even though you didn't credit yourself, what what do you look? What are some of those intangibles that that? Was it the way you recorded it? Um, what, yes. what, 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 can you talk about the the process of of miking certain? I'm, I'm curious about the process because, I mean, clearly a, a pretty major label came and found you. They dug what they were hearing, and I just was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, the production of that that album. I think we just tried to make it. That's like I said, that Ray Davies, Ray Price thing. I, you know, I, I think we, you know, we started with the songs and we're singing together and we'd have something that, and, you know, Eleanor being a violin fiddle player, so it's pretty easy to sound Southern. Like, we both have that on lockdown. Right. Eleanor's from Denton. 
Ah. Uh, so we, we're, we're Southern no matter what we do about it. And then I, but we kind of came up with this thing where if we wrote something that sounded too twangy, we'd throw a weird minor chord in it. I love or, it, dude. There you go, or, man. Or a crazy middle age. You know, like Masterson songs all have, a lot of them have weird bridges, you know. So, like, if something's too twangy, we, we, we try to anglophile it up, take it to the other side of the <laughs> pond, or throw, throw a Mellotron on it. And if something is too, too rock, we'll put pedal steel or fiddle on it and bring it back. You know, I, I mean, I guess it's kind of, uh, in my mind, it's like playing with geography, you know. It's like, are we are we in, uh, you know, are we in London? Are we in Texas? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the other word that gets used too much is just you're, you're, you're playing fusion music. I mean, you're fusing stuff together that, uh, but music is, and I think we're getting closer to this idea of these ridiculous labels where, you know, like, you know, your alternative means fusion. Alternative means you're incorporating the high lonesome sounds of, uh, you know, the, you know, the Appalachia or Texas or the Whispering Pines of Louisiana or British rock, as opposed to just some sort of pop, you know. And again, the other part of it is just like, uh, you know, the idea of real human beings playing the music as opposed to people either playing the machine parts or actual like you know just electronic rhythm sections you know right no and i mean so you know getting back to that first record like you'd asked uh you know so we kind of had started to come up with the songwriting and singing templates and then you know also eleanor and i have both played with so many people so we're pretty comfortable in a studio setting i mean i, I love it it's it's like it's all the joy of touring, except I get to be in my own bed every night. Um, <laughs> but so we went into our friend George Reef's house mm. in, Austin, in Austin, and you know, without a huge plan, and because we, you know, we didn't have that record deal, we so we had no expectations. It was basically five friends, two of them being married, making music together, and we we made some songs that we liked. Um, you know, as far as stylistic choices and. And in miking, I knew I wanted something warm sounding. I mean, I can. I'm happy, you know, listening to Ry Cooter records on my hi-fi. You know, I want. Oh, dude, exactly, warm, man. Go ahead, continue. Big warm sounds, and so I mean, without getting into technical geekery, I mean, lots of ribbon mics, calf skin heads on the drums. Beautiful. Um, did you, know, you did you a, did you just? I'm curious about like how sparse was the mic. I mean, did you just have? one mic over the drums. I mean, sometimes the leakage is what made those Rykuda records so amazing, you know? Well, and well, it's the parts. I mean, one thing that I, and I've geeked out about record recording over the years and, you know, an A plus performance recorded in any fidelity, let's say a C minus fidelity bests the opposite. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Very good point. And, you know, for instance, I, you know, you know, I love how Dan Lenoir records sound, you know, one time and, and I've been on sessions where people have been like, how do we get this sound or that sound? And what? Let's shoot out some mics. And then, you know, I was on a session up in Malibu one time with Mark Howard Engineering, who engineered a lot of those great records that Lenoir did. Absolutely. And 
and Mark has such a casual style of engineering. I mean, we, we threw my old deluxe in a closet. He threw a mic on it. And he didn't even audition or, you know, get a tone dialed in until we started recording the first track. And, I mean, later on in the day, like, he's like, we should do a harmony on this. And Eleanor was sitting there. And she didn't go to a booth or go sing on a, you know, $10,000 U47. He just handed her a 58. Oh, man, I love this cat, man. This is what this is the old school uh, mentality right there. You know, so, and that's one of my, you know, as far as modern engineers, someone I really look up to. And Now, conversely, I've been on sessions where, you know, we did No Time for Love songs with Shooter Jennings producing and Ryan Freeland engineering. And he has, even though Ryan, you know, makes these really organic sounding records with Joe Henry, and I, I'm equally a fan of his, he, you know, there was a, he'd use more mics, you know, where there's, there's condenser and ribbon mics on everything. And um, so, but, you know, long story long, I, 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 the process doesn't matter that much if the part is right. And if the part's not right, no amount of, you know, well, here's what they did on chess records. Well, no amount of fixing it or trying trickery will make it be the right part. So it's, to me, it's like, how do we find that right part? Talking to Chris Masterson here on the Jake Feinberg show. He's just waxing poetic here. I, I, I wonder if you, you talk about creating music from an honest place, can you point to like an early time in your career, you know, maybe before you even were steadily playing gigs on a, on the bandstand, maybe early on in that process where you were able to kind of get out of your own way, uh, and allow honest information to come through you. And, uh, you know, maybe it was a little bit awkward at first, but it helped you find your voice man i could almost think about every one of those times. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe so going I back started, to louisiana I, I i'm really intrigued by this idea of i don't know how long you were there for but that place is i mean that's swamp gumbo out there man it's crazy out there i think it, it i think it affects um i think it affects my meter i mean i, I i'm always trying to be i can feel it man it definitely me, does you know? yeah dude I, um, but no, I, so I, I got a guitar in my hands when I was eight. Um, I had this harmony stratotone that I still own. It was my dad's and, you know, eight, eight was when I could get my hand around that big neck. And, <laughs> and I started taking lessons when I was young and, you know, I, I had this, this cool teacher and he'd show me some theory and then he'd show me, uh, you know, a kiss song or just. He had a good way of teaching where it was like some some theory and something fun. And and then I had this sort of catalog of all these scales and chord voicings and modes. and um, But I couldn't apply any of it. They, these were all just things that I had to practice before my lesson the next week. And it wasn't until... Yeah, but sometime when I was really young, you know, maybe it was probably before junior high it could have been fifth or sixth grade like uh, my dad and i were playing music together and he he was a hobbyist he you know he played wildwood flower and a, and a few other songs oh, but you know yeah uh, but he was just he said something like play that pentatonic scale that you learned i mean so not even the, not even the modes um and and i remember the first time i improvised over that and oh. it 
you know, I was just like, oh. <laughs> this that, is great, was, man. That was like when all this knowledge, like, started to, um, to, I was like, this isn't just abstract knowledge that I have to memorize before next Wednesday. This is, like, the shit. I love it. You're, that is, so you were in sixth grade around that time? Yeah, maybe oh my before. God, that's it was great. fifth or sixth grade. That and is I just great. remember my dad playing like an A chord and he's like, play that scale. And he, and, and he, my, my dad was, you know, not like a great teacher, but I just, I remember the moment. I remember where we were sitting in the house. And so that's the first light bulb. And then, you know, you start to figure out the modes. And then I, you know, then, then I really got my ear into shape. Um, and <laughs> it's funny, the more I, the more I figured out how to improvise, the the worse my theory got. I, I would be a horrible guitar teacher. No, but I think that the, the way your dad went about it, I mean, there is some sort of family lineage that is kind of unquantifiable, but, you know, he didn't, he was not a virtuoso and he wasn't a teacher, but yet what he, what he did to you was, what he helped you do was just open this gateway so, yeah, and I don't even know if he was trying to. Do exactly. That. No, that's the best I never stuff, really man. Talked about this, yeah, exactly. but yeah, but it, but but I remember we were sitting in the living room when that light bulb went off. Um, yeah. So next light bulb. Yep. Um, Jimmy Reed Records. Yes. Um, Chuck Berry. Um, talk a little bit about to talk about specifically what you were really hearing that that allowed you to continue to increase vocabulary and, and grow your ears well i i don't know if i would talk about jimmy reed and increasing vocabulary because it's pretty simple <laughs> it is but, it is but and another you know for for your listeners another you know another way to even like bring up this nuance is like watch hail hail rock and roll and watch it when chuck Barry is schooling Keith on how to play that one little lick. It's mm -hmm. a it's a bend on an intro to the song. Wow. But what happens? Like uh, Eddie Taylor played guitar and that stuff. He plays so behind the beat. You know, a Jimmy Reed is you know playing a shuffle and E is pretty simple on the guitar. It's it, it, minimal effort. You could almost show anybody how to do it. Um, but the feel, the, the way it's behind the beat, and so I I, I just became like between those Jimmy Reed and Chuck Berry and then like Dave Edmonds and Rockpile, the Runka Runka stuff, mm. like the way people sat on the beat and the way they got played behind the beat. And that that's so it like in a way, I don't, I don't think I'm a very good guitar player. I think my feel is really good. Well, that, that to me is the, you just nailed it. it it's not about facility and technique and riffology. It's about feel. You got to make. Uh, I mean, look, I love watching Red Volcar play. I got to see Danny Gatton a few times. Oh, damn. Are you kidding me? You need to tell me about those experiences. Dude, that cat, man. <laughs> Mind blowing, uh, dude. Oh, I mean, I, I was young. My mom and I went to a lot of concerts together, but there was this club in Houston called Pat and Pete's Bonton Room. Oh. And that's where kind of where all the. You know, it was, it was the, sort of the, the end of the heyday of the Chitlin circuit blues bands you know where a band like that could still go tour around the country and make a great living i love this i would see like anson thunderberg and and um there was a slide player roy rogers um did gatton come to that room too yeah oh yeah and that so that was like maybe 150 cap room oh my every God. surface in there was reflective that was one <laughs> of the loudest shows and and you're talking 
to a guy that like is like seen Blue Cheer and Dinosaur Junior and like, but Danny Gatton playing through his Tweed Twin in that room was like so loud. Oh my god, that is mind blowing. You, so I mean, I'm curious about uh, you. Sort of develop. You really became maybe subconsciously <clears throat> very intoxicated with feel, but yes. when you started to get ensconced in the studio scene in LA. It's funny because this one drummer, Willie Hall, <laughs> who took over, who was a big Stax drummer. Uh, uh-huh. I, I yeah. mean, you know, yeah, you know what, maybe he played with the Blues Brothers and stuff, but such a badass, played with the Barquets, but he would talk about these different, like, you know, and I'm going to screw this up, but, you know, the part region of the country, they play on top of the B, and then, uh-huh. you know, in the South, it's a little bit behind the beat, and in, in LA, it's maybe in front of the beat. I mean, I just wonder... Uh, when you got to LA, um, did it take people a minute to, to get comfortable with your feel because that region of the country didn't necessarily adhere to the being behind the beat? No, not so much out here. Um, no. And I, and I think the kind of people I get to hang out with, you know, are into the same, you know, we have similar interests sure, uh, sure. and ideals and, 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 and I do like, like you're saying, Willie said, I do think geography plays a large role in this all. Now that said, I don't want to dismiss what anybody's doing on any coast or uh, like, for instance, um, you know, like, uh, you know, I know you're talked about Neil Casal a lot, but like that brings me up to Tony Leone. Oh, well, I mean, thank you for, you know, you read my mind there. So go ahead. But so, so, the way to- Tony plays like a Southern man, and he's, <laughs> he's not Southern. So, like, I, I don't want to just be dismissive of someone because of where they were from. I mean, but I feel it. Like, when Eleanor and I moved to New York in um, um, 2007, we moved from Austin to New York, and, and we were hanging out. I was playing in Sunvolt at the time. But, like, we were starting to go out around town and get, get you know, used to the scene, and we got invited to do this 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 some kind of country show i don't know if it's like a buck owens tribute or a merle thing and and we like we kind of thought to ourselves oh man this is this is great we're part of the community we're getting invited to shit <laughs> and, and it was yeah and i don't want to take no, away cool. but, yeah. but then we got there and then we're like hearing how the shuffles went down and like how the music it like it had everything had sort of this almost cabaret feel to me i see and, you now you're getting you're getting it's getting greasy right i love where you're going with this yeah it was cabaret but like but like i said it's like i don't want to i don't want to assassinate anyone's character or the but no again we're, the feel it didn't us. it didn't feel authentic at that point but it's fine you're, you don't need to okay. preface it but then you talk about like when i was in new york after i was there for a bit i did a gig um with this guy byron isaacs and um I, it was a gig with Jill Sobule. We were, I was subbing on it, and we we were playing outside, and there was this big rainstorm, and, and so we wound up in this dressing room trailer for hours waiting to play. <laughs> it was just Byron and I, and we found out we were both grew up in Houston, and um, and he had this band Ola Bell, wow. and wow. and and I went and sat in with them after that, and Ola Bell is like. That was Amy Helm, uh, Fiona McBain, who's Tony's wife, Tony Leone, Byron, and and Glenn Pacha, and they're 
they're all still friends of mine. And, um, it, you know, so I got to kind of hang out in their sphere a little bit. I played with Glenn. I played on a record of Byron's. Then Byron was producing a record for Amy, and we went up to the barn and, you know, uh, you know, two days after getting the call, I'm recording with Levon and Amy. You know, it's like, so, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, and, and that feel is, you know, that feel is like nothing else, you know. That's a... I want to read this. I got the quote here, and then you can riff on it. This is what Willie Hall said. He, he said, the drummers on the East Coast play on top of the beat. The guys in L.A. Play, play a little bit in front of the beat. The guys in the South, we all play behind the beat. I'd go to a recording session in New York, and the producer would say, hey, man, you're playing behind the beat. Can you get on top of the beat? I said, sure, man, I can. My playing behind the beat was very laid back, was due to playing in the South. In L.A., they wanted it a little more frisky. There were times when they would have to use machines to put drummers on top of the beat. Now, I just want to be very clear. I mean, he came up at a time before Full Interconnection, so there was all this regional sound that you are so in love with and that I'm fascinated with. I mean, the Gulf Coast sound, there was Hot Atlanta, Miami, you know, Chicago. Everyone had their own shuffles. I mean, it was because we, you know, and now there's a bit of a homogenization wherever you go. I just think that as a non-musician, you talk about someone like Leone, who's so schooled in, you know, the guy could play bebop, you know, he could play rock and roll, you know, and then you're talking, I mean, he's in Little Feet now, which is also behind the beat. Yeah, exactly, man. It's like, and yet it just comes down to this idea that you don't have to be from the South to play behind the beat. And you don't have to be broke to play the blues. I mean, Miles had money. He could play the blues, you know? I mean, it's... It, so, these are just things that are epiphanies to me along the way. Um, but I, I did want to ask you... It's kind of a heavy question, but... <clears throat> I mean, you... Things have kind of flowed very naturally for you. People's... I mean, like people's... Like you said, outside looking in. Um, hey. you know, but I, I wonder about... If you could just talk a little bit about... Music as salvation, and the idea of if you feel that in some way, in some ways, music has has saved your life. Interesting. All right. Um, well, I mean, I, I mentioned when we first started talking uh, that teenage enthusiasm. Hard uh, to conjure up at forty-five, but I love it. I mean, I'm still there too, man. You got to stay young at heart, you know. No, but I, but I mean, like. You know, when I'm young, when I'm having those light bulb moments like I'm talking about, that's like, that's some heavy shit. And I'm still looking for that hit. And I, <laughs> when I go to Amoeba and I buy LPs, I, like, I'm still a music fan. Most nights we're sitting in our living room listening to the hi-fi. I, I'm still looking for that. You know, I'm still a music fan. Um, you know, I've, I've toured too much and I'm trying to send that out a little bit. But... Um, Music is salvation. Like it, it, it always has been. I mean, so I also mentioned earlier coming out here as a teenager and learning some of what to do and what not to do. And you know, at at a certain point, the what not to do took over, and I got kind of out there on on drugs and alcohol and other stuff. And and I got sober when I was really young. So I've been I've been sober since I was. 22 I, I i think it's 24 years now wow wow um mazel tov. 
but one of the interesting things, and I, when I talk about the bad old days, like I never needed any of that. It wasn't a crutch to get on stage. If anything, I feel disappointed in myself if if I got really stoned before a gig or like like music has just been the the best thing ever. And it, I mean, it, it's it's better than any drug I've tried. It's like it's like it's um it's really interesting i mean i love everything about it you know from the, just buying records to playing guitar to to engineering something my wife's recording to looking at ebay for guitars i mean it probably takes up 95 percent of my time if not more absolutely <laughs> I, I really want you to go talk about this I, you're still searching though like it, there's nothing more than the pursuit and the search of something that's going to make you feel energetic again and youthful again that that is the paramount thing in, in well, this and pursuit even, and it all ties together because like so say we're i'm on a session and you know you have one of those producers like willie's talking about can you play more on top of it like i want to be a i want to i want to be a slave to the song and i want to nail it I sure mean, sure i'm probably a people pleaser too but if i if i can you know, if I'm like say, playing an acoustic track and someone's like, bury the click, you know, I, I know what that means. I know how to get just to pep it up a little bit. And I love the idea of, you know, space and time and music. You know, you could say, well, it's math. It's four, four or three, four if it's a waltz. But man, there's a lot of space within that. I love where you're going with beats. this, dude. I love it, man. No, I mean, um, also with you, I mean, it's about slave to the song, bringing your, you know, bringing your own intangibles, but, you know, it's not even about being a people pleaser. I mean, this goes back to all the cats like Chuck Rainey and Steve Gadd and those guys. They wanted to do the best they could so that they get called back and you get more gigs, you know? Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, that. yeah, there's, I, I mean, I guess that, that plays into it. It's nice to work, but I mean, but it's also nice to, to, to make, really good art and have a really good feel and that's that feel it's like that's it's it can be so elusive and i'm not saying i'm the best at it maybe you know there's there's people that you know that should get the call before i do but it's it's um it's it's really special a lot of times um when i i do stuff with shooter jennings out here and he's one of my favorite producers and fellow music geek and and we dork out on a lot of stuff but a lot of times like on these um i I just made the last two tanya tucker records um with him and a lot of times i'll go down first on acoustic and it's it's so i'm i'm and then we'll kind of pick and choose spots for electric guitar or go well we want mandolin or baritone and i'll go back but like man just being in the band with the drummer and and thinking what the hi-hat's doing and just you know You'd think, oh, it's someone. He's just playing acoustic guitar on a three chord song. How hard could it be? It's like, well, you try it, and Make yeah, it and it, the same. It, well, and that's the, it, it. It's not necessarily. It's about again the feel, uh, which is very hard. I mean, you have to. <laughs> what you know, we talk about what not to do when you you know in L.A. You talk about you know drugs, booze, and that kind of stuff, and sort of being in the haze. But what are the things that you learn that you need to do, uh, or you should you? that you should do in order to thrive in, in as, as a hired gun or a, a, a band leader, what did you learn to do? Oh, great question. Um, well, you know, I, I, it's it, it, a great, 
a great side person or a great producer or a great band leader it, it's sort of more than just the songs um you know my some of my um producer heroes you know it's like they bring a vibe to the session and, and and something happens it puts the artists and the other people at ease and and i and i think i try to do that i try to travel pretty easy and uh you know not bring a bunch of bullshit to the gig absolutely and, um, that's great and i've joked though i'd rather be around a b-plus player that's an a-plus hang <laughs> dude there's nothing you know that's the i mean to me b-plus is great if you know i mean it, and if it's a great hang, then the vibration is going to be higher. Well, right. And you get that, you know, I mean, so, I mean, my, my friend Brad Pemberton, he's, he always says that I forget who, who told him. He just says anything in life, know where you're at, <sighs> you know, and it's, 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 it's great words to live by is know where you're at. And, and just the simple stuff, it's like, you know, say what you mean, mean what you say, don't say it mean. Like, just be nice. Um, mm. Treat, you know, golden rule shit. Um, but I think that really comes, especially in our kind of music, where you're talking about something organic and that, that needs to be honest. And um, I, I think the vibe is, is a lot of it. Let me ask you, though, do you have, can you talk about maybe some, I remember sort of the, one of the gateways for me in 2014, I, I, I finally had a chance to interview uh, John McLaughlin and I, and I we, I've since done a several interviews with him, but he talked about getting, you know, so here's a guy, very accomplished player um, in, in England, was playing, uh, you know, pretty much straight yeah, ahead, straight ahead jazz, you know, this is before Mahavishnu, he gets off the plane, <clears throat> Tony Williams picks him up, and the next day, Miles has him in the studio on, in a silent way, and Miles goes up to him. Now, you talk about being nice, and that's, you know, it's key. Miles gets in his ear and says, play the guitar like you don't know how to play the guitar. And it totally, like, McLaughlin's like, he took him way out of his thinking mind. He didn't know what Miles was talking about, but it worked. He got him into this place where he tried to pull, go through what Miles, he tried to play like a novice. And if you listen, you know, and he pulled it off. And Dijonette and Billy Cobham told me that stuff where it, they called him a Zen master at being able to, and, and where, right. where you don't, you're, you're not psyching people out, but you're no. getting them out of their normal mindset. Is, is Can you talk, I don't want you to give away the secrets, but can you talk about a time when you, when you got into somebody's head in a good way, because you want it to be organic. You don't want cats in their thinking mind. Absolutely. No, no. And I mean, I'm, I'm listening to this. No, and I'll share, there's, there's no secrets. I'll, I'll share anything. I'm, I, I'm, <laughs> yeah, you're an open book. I love it, dude. Yeah. I'm anything but a gatekeeper and we can talk <laughs> about that too. Sure. But, um, yeah, right. No. So you're talking about that and I'm thinking, man, what an amazing directive. <laughs> I um, but, and, and, and I don't know, you know, I mean, maybe I, obviously it's even more profound because it smiles, but I'm thinking about all the good advice that I've been told over the years, you know, like dynamics. Sometimes I forget, I forget who told me this, but we, I was playing something and it, probably an acoustic instrument. And, and he said, play softer, make the microphone chase you. Mm. You, don't, you don't remember who said that though. I don't, it may have been make the George microphone. Chase. I love that one. Um, and, and various things for feel, you know, and then, I mean, some, 
but great producers are just full of that stuff. You know, like, um, it, you know, sometimes it's just how to deliver a line. Sometimes it's like two people singing a harmony part and they'll say, you know, soften up the consonants so it doesn't slam with the, the lead vocal. Like there's, there's just so many little tricks and I don't, I don't think of them as secrets. I mean, if I don't go to a session and learn something, it sounds like a boring day. <laughs> well, that's the, but again, sometimes I think people get hung up. I mean, again, Miles was Miles, but you know, when he, when, what he did with Billy Cobham was, you know, he, these guys were kind of in awe of him. And I wouldn't say that they were in, intimidated might've been the right word, might be the right word. And you, you know, but you want to do it in a way where you're, you just, you're keeping people on their toes. I mean, when you're in the studio with, you know, I don't care who it is, a uh, grave off, uh, you know, uh, Leone, Amy Helm. I mean, these are professional. These are pros, you know? And so like, in some ways you just, if you're looking for something, if there, there's just, you have to constantly, in my mind, uh, while keeping the tenets of humanity and, 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 and being, a, being nice. I mean, you have to consistently, I think, uh, find different ways of inspiring cats. And that's the, that to me in the studio is the, is the magic of it all is if you can inspire people. And sometimes that means you have to push them out of their comfort zone. You know that, I mean, that's just the reality of it. And I think it's a delicate balance, but I also think yeah, that it's, it's psychology. I mean, you're, if you're in the producer role, you're, you're reading the room, seeing how things are going, seeing what the artist you're producing is loving and not loving um, you know, you have to just steadily steer the ship. Um, and, you know, some, and, and every, every uh, man and woman that does that has their, their way of doing it. But, um, you know, my favorite ones, they just kind of, they, they get what they need out of you without you really knowing it. Well, that, that, I mean, that's the key. Well, what about, talk to me a little bit about uh, Jim Scott. I haven't talked to him yet. Uh, you know, I was thinking about Jim when I said that. I know because I mean because I mean that man had his I mean no I mean everybody loves that cat and so I want you to just riff on him I mean uh he did the he he good luck charm 2014 uh with Ginty and Stepro I'm just curious about it you know recollecting from that session did, did he pull sort of that out of you without you even knowing it yeah, I think so. I, I mean, it's weird because that was our second record, and I think that was a period where we probably were feeling some self-imposed pressure to, like, you know, best the first record. Um, we were really excited to work with Jim. Um, our A&R guy at New West was was really cool, and we felt, you know, so happy when Jim agreed to do it, and they made everything work out. And then, you know, we got out there with some songs, and... and and, you know, Stepro, I've known, he played at our wedding in New York. Oh, I mean, dear. we go way back, and oh, George man. Reef was playing bass. And, and um, it was just very comfortable. And Jim has this, you know, and it's probably just that, it, it's just the, the 10,000 or 100,000 hours in his case that he's done it. Like, I never felt engineered. Like, you just didn't feel the process. It right, was like, right. get out there and play the song a few times, and... He'd definitely have some suggestions, but it never felt heavy-handed. It felt really organic. And it, it, we didn't spend a lot of time fussing. You know, the sounds were great right out of the, from Jump. Um, it was, it was, it was maybe one of the easiest records we've made. 
And you know, and then he still he still mixes on his analog Neve desk. And w- even when we got to the end of the record, he's mixing two songs a day instead of having you know now that people are mixing things on their computers and nothing wrong with that. Um, but people now are just asking for revision after revision and kind of like when you're mixing on an analog desk, it, a recall takes a couple hours and it's only going to be 96% like it was before. Exactly. So I think we only had one recall on that record and it was over just a vocal level thing. So it was pretty important to us, but it, it that was just the, the the whole process felt really streamlined, not never rushed. You know, his his studio is really um, really vibey, and we'd work a little bit, and then we'd go out into the lounge, and he, they'd cook there, and he'd mm. eat healthy, and then go back and work a bit more. And um, that's great. It's like it's like C Saint Studios with Alan Toussaint. He had a woman who was uh, always cooking Cajun food and baking for the musicians. They'd finish. You know, they did start the mornings there. Uh, at 10 a.m. with a Heineken and a joint, though. That's pretty legendary. Yeah, you know, I mean, whatever gets the job done. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. The, clearly they made some good records. I just, I love the idea of making it comfortable and home-like and then not doing this endless revision. That's the other thing. It's just, you know, it, it, I was going to ask you, uh, <clears throat> Louis Shelton on last train to Clarksville with the monkeys. He hit a clam that wound up in the song and that song became a hit song. David Spinoza, right place, wrong time. Dr. John overbent a string, total clam job. Arif Mardin said, we love it. You're done. Obviously that song became a hit. Chris Masterson, is there a tune that you, where you hit a noticeable clam? It wound up staying in the tune and the tune, lives on to this day as one of you know as a as a great great piece yes um but i don't think i could point to a specific song um, <laughs> and because uh, I, I, th- I think it happens often you know we're always hmm. going to be our own worst critic um and and i, I it's funny I, I think back to a time um i was out here in the you know in the 90s and i was on this session and I think I was making some demos at this at studio in Hollywood, and I was playing a guitar solo, and I and I broke a string on it. And, right, right. And this is another light bulb moment. And and the guy I was working with, and I was just like, oh, we got to fix that. You know, I was going to my case to get strings, and and he's like, how about we be done for the day? I, I still drank at the time. He's like, let's go get a drink. Come back tomorrow. <laughs> right. And and then tomorrow it sounded like the most off the rails cool thing. Oh, I love it, that, dude. So like learning that things heal themselves. You know, right place at the wrong time you're talking about these legendary songs and and I, and I guarantee those players aren't worrying about their clams. I mean, it's unnerving. No, you know what's sure. funny? I know this is so great cuz what you said that first day in in <coughs> on that you said, "Oh, I got to do that again." Spinoza was tuning up hit the clam, and said, oh, let me do that again. And they say, nope, you're done. So the musicians never change. The other part of it is he got in a cab uh, with like six guitars around his arms, going to studios, jingles, and a few weeks later. In the, 
the cab driver's like, uh, oh, man, you got to listen to my, this is my new favorite tune. He throws on Right Place, Wrong Time, and Spinoza's like, oh, that's me on there. He's like, you're full of shit, man. But uh, the point is he wanted to do it again, too. So the really good, I mean, the re- no matter how they pull you away, you come back the next day, time, and I just think sort of that sort of self-imposed critic melts away a little bit, and you realize that in some ways, you don't want it to be sloppy, but imperfection is perfection, really. Yeah, I mean, it's what we're going for. I mean, if we're talking like all that the loose southern stuff or swamp pop, I mean, it's 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 vibe. Um, I mean, I got a lot of that with working with Steve Earle and Ray Kennedy. I mean, that we were working on a Steve record, you know, basically... When he has the, the vocal take, which is pretty damn quick, that he likes, we're done. I mean, you may get a fix, but you might not. Right, so kinda, right. Because it feels good. Because it feels good. Right. Yeah. And, and early on, that might be a little unnerving. But then then when you, you know, go somewhere and hear Steve Earle on the radio on a track you played on, you're not thinking about that. It's, <laughs> you've got to play on this track and be a, a party to this thing that became, you know, recording it should be a line in the sand it's like to make public record right and not not something to revise over a year i mean i think you know pro tools and hard drives are great but i don't think records sound any better when they live on a hard drive and get fucked with for a year Uh, you know you just i just got goosebumps That, that the last 20 seconds you just said that might be the most profound thing because all the, I mean, I really only listen to high, the records. Like, you know, you, you sit with your wife and, you know, you listen to hi-fi. I mean, none of the, these guys were going, they were doing three, four sessions a day. They had to knock something out in, in like 90 minutes or, you know, a couple of that. They didn't have time to ruminate on it. Uh, <clears throat> and you talk about running this stuff through this, these compression uh, tools, uh, pro tools, you know, you can fix everything. And yet when it's all said and done, there's no f- soul left in the song. Uh, there's no, the, the feel is gone. Uh, well, Steve and Ray always say, yeah. um, like when you, you know, if you play a track and, you know, you so you got this record, you cut and you love it. And you, like, you want to just go fix one thing. It's the, the most offensive thing on the track and you want to fix it, you know, and you go fix it. There's going to be another most offensive thing on the track. That's right. That's right. And that's a really delicate wormhole to get into. Now, in all fairness, Jim Scott would say better is better. And he might give give a, a player or an artist another swing at the pinata. Um, you know, so sometimes, you know, sometimes there might be. Oh, I got a good one. This, <laughs> You're wrong with it. We were tracking it. Um, it was before Eleanor and I played in Steve's band. I mean, we were getting ready to, but we were up in uh, Woodstock working on a record that Steve was producing at Levon's place um, for this friend of ours, Anna Aggie. And. We we got the songs like the night you know night before. It was kind of Steve style. It wasn't there wasn't a lot of pre, or any pre production. I love it. Yeah, that's great. And we play some song with kind of a a traditional country intro. I I have to go back and listen to remember it. And Eleanor Eleanor took the the intro on the fiddle and 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 she uh, and she told you know went and did what what all of us musos do went up to the control room and said Steve I think I can beat that and, and you know Steve being Steve he's like 
you can't beat that. That's it. And she's like, no, I think I can beat it. He's like, well, I'll give you a hundred dollars if you can beat it. Oh, and Eleanor went back down on the floor and just nailed it. And Steve just went, fuck. Wow. And pulled a hundred dollars out. So I don't think, I, you know, but but that was you're talking about two you're talking about two takes you're not talking about twenty I'm literally talking about two yeah takes. we're not talking about twenty takes no two takes that's fine I mean that no yeah. there, there there's nothing good in in between takes uh, you know nine and twenty you know it's, right. it's all there on the first few <laughs> I love, dude it's beautiful man I mean what would be I mean I'm not trying to criticize anybody but just because we have the technology so readily available that people feel like the most offensive thing becomes the seventh most offensive thing. Then it goes dozen, 24, 50. I mean, what would you say to cats who are still sort of fighting the ability to express themselves honestly, um, are definitely hung up on what they consider to be perfection in the recording process, meaning it takes a year or more, um, and they they sort of have they don't necessarily have that long view of um you know the idea that uh well the, just the stuff we've been talking about is there a way not that you experienced it but what would be your advice in terms of some most people are just petrified of letting their honest self hang out there naked for the world and they so they have to you know doctor it up with uh with you know with technology or you know getting it to the point where it's almost soulless but i just wonder what you would say to cats who are trying to wean themselves off of that sort of lack of authenticity and and just be okay being naked to the world um i don't know i mean i guess it depends what you're going for i mean you know there's there's plenty of people that want to you know, make music for YouTube or TikTok and, sure. and sound, you know, sound, have that homogenized sound and those tuned vocals. And, and, you know, if they're happy, joyous and free, I, I, I'm not, they, you know, if they're liberated, more power to them. Yeah. But I'm talking um, about cats that want something deeper that know there's something deeper out there. I think you just, you have to learn from, you know, so when, when Steve would say something like that, you know, you, uh, Steve Earl's made a lot more records than I have. So is Ray Kennedy. So is, you know, Jim Scott when he gives you a little tidbit. So is my friend. <laughs> like, you just try to learn from all of those. And, um, you know, I, I've probably had stuff on Steve Records that I regretted in the moment. And then you, you learn that sometimes those things heal themselves. Um, and then, you know, but then again, like, what's the worst thing that could happen? We're talking about art. Like, uh, absolutely. Well, I mean, art is to be shared. Not, to, I, I do. I was, I used to go back. And I still, you know, you know, 11 years into my show, I go back to the earliest shows and I'm like, so insecure. I'm talking to whoever it is, Jack DeJanette or whoever it is. And I'm, you know, try, I know what I want to say, but I can't get it out. And, and I go back and listen to some of this stuff and I'm like, you know, it's not that bad. It does heal itself. And I just, I wish cats, especially if they are searching, if they're seeking, that they can just settle into that zone of uncomfortability for a for a little while because it will not just pass but be something that you will go back to time and time again right well it's 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 honest it's uh um, yeah, right. but but I, that said i understand and everyone has a different threshold and i respect that like when eleanor and i make music together we we lovingly refer to her as the pitch bitch <laughs> and, and and look i mean she her mother's a, a classically trained opera singer um no it was a big deal yeah yeah, um, yeah, 
she's you know so when we first got together she she has this level of refinement that i don't possess and then i'm i'm like i'm the caveman you know trying to make it sound like a frankie lee sims record or just i mean not that i'll ever sound like frankie lee sims but i just love I dig. like crazy off the rails shit and but you know, I think there there are lessons to learn from the both of us, and I think we've learned from each other. Um, so, you know, there is a time to refine. You know, there may be, or like Jim Scott says, better is better. But there's also a time to leave well enough alone and know that there's something special in those early takes when you're just hanging on. And it might go off the rails, but that's like my favorite shit. The shit that might go off the rails that lands, that's like... Uh, dude i was excited yeah i mean not in the studios it's hard to do this i love when it goes off the rails and then gets back on the rails that's more of a live thing but that's what i love the most because then i know the cats are playing beyond what they know and they're going for it and that to me is what live music experience is all about and i i you know you don't want to be off you don't want to be sloppy in the studio but you also well i think we've you know, I, I wonder about Chris Masterson, like, we are, you know, we just have been through so much, the world is going a little bit mad, I mean, you know, <clears throat> we're trying to steady the, steady the ship in our own way in this country, but, you know, just with the pandemic, the idea of, I mean, if you really look at it, I mean, the one thing that was completely taken away was live touring music. A lot of venues shut down, and it's just, it's remarkable that, you know, the I believe that musicians in this day and age, and I don't care what genre it is, um, you guys are as important as medical doctors today, because we live in such a litigious society, it's so verbose, we hang on words, and, and yeah, there's, there's singer-songwriter stuff, but music is vibrational healing, and so for that to be taken away for a couple of years... Was re- I mean, I know cats played private parties and people figured out how to get by, hopefully. But I just wonder over that period of time, did you kind of real? I don't want to say you took anything for granted, but did things come up? Did you have a do you have a bucket list of things that post COVID, so to speak, that you didn't necessarily have before? There are things that you really are kind of horny to do that you that you didn't ha- that wasn't necessarily on your radar before. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, well, a few things would center around the pandemic or the pandemic. Um, <laughs> you know, we, I mean, it was so weird because it affected everyone. We were in New York City. Oh, you were? Our, well, I mean, uh, it was March 6th. Yes. The day our record came out, uh, No Time for Love Songs. And like we had just done FUV and we were playing, uh, we, we were playing with the Jayhawks. And so, it was like the the ramp up for our fourth record was almost better than anyone that came before. So things were feeling really good. And that was the day South by canceled. And then, you know, a few days later, everything cancels. And I, I, I feel lucky cause I, I feel like I went into acceptance mode pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, uh, and, and brag on Steve and his organization. Like we, we, as we were canceling everything, I mean, we're going home and I'm like canceling my audible subscription and like trying, I'm going into triage mode. Uh, totally. And, and, and Steve, his business manager 
they actually that you know they got the PPP and and they they helped us out and see I love it, that that to me is several I mean luckily he had the app the resources to do that but he kept you at least on salary or, or kept you afloat it wasn't the whole time I mean it was a it was a, 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 a you know but I, I I brag on him because I also know other bigger artists that didn't do that oh me. man that so hurt that's gonna... a kick in the gut but I'm not surprised yeah I was, dude big brag on Steve Earl for that yeah I'm gonna give him that um. But so so we got home and so then once that happened, it it did alleviate some pressure because we're not thinking how we're going to pay rent this month. Right. Um, I mean we we ended up, but um, and I and I also have to say I was really lucky because I was with Eleanor. You know we we did this together, and um, you know so and because I, I I know it was really hard on a lot of my single friends. You know, a far more insular existence. You know? Absolutely. I, 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 without my daughters, uh, I I definitely would. I mean, I'm still feeling the effects of it, but they kept me together. So I never thought about that. That 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 isolation. I mean, it's still there in some ways. But yeah, going well, through it with somebody. So is, Eleanor yeah. and I made a lot of music together. We we you know we made a we made the Red White and I Love You Two EP. Um, Bonnie, Eleanor's sister, came out. She called us and wanted to come quarantine in L.A. with us. And I think she had this sort of Southern California vacation in mind. And, you know... <laughs> it was all was shut like, down, dude. And, and I said, if she comes out here, you guys are making a fucking record. Wow. And because, you know, two sisters that hadn't done that yet. That, oh, you know, knock it out. I mean, how amazing yeah. is that? Yeah, it's great. So... I don't feel like we suffered from a lack of creativity in the pandemic at all. No way. Um, so that, you know, having, and then I was, you know, I made a couple records with shooter producing and, um, I do remember the first time I got back in the room with a drummer and that was like, that was so special. I miss that. I'm, it's Brad Pimperton, you know, is, you know, my brother, sure. and we, we, we make a lot of music together and, uh, you know, I, I remember we were in the studio in New York. Um, we had to fly mid-pandemic because Steve lost his son, Justin. And, right, right, right. And he he called us, you know, after it had happened a couple of weeks later and says, I, I, I'd like to make a record of Justin's songs. And can you guys come to New York? And, you know, we double masked and went out there. And, and I remember like setting up and I hit like a big E chord and the amp was near Brad's head and I was like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. You know, it's kind of, and he's like, no, I kind of loved it. Like, <laughs> just because we'd all had I know, I here. dig it, man. No, he had missed that feeling, you know? So, yes, I mean, I missed ensemble playing. Um, and then, you know, we all got back on the road, and, and it was really nice until the Delta variant hit. Um, I, I mean, where do you think we are? Um, I mean, in terms of, like, I, I recognize because I, I I really respect the whole. <clears throat> it was a very sit, horrible situation. It was completely unprecedented, and and I, you know, so I I try to be respectful, but in terms of like, uh, a, as a touring musician, um, can you just talk a little bit about um, if you know, in terms of where we're at, it, in terms of the sustainability of, uh of large touring. And I'm not, you know, I know you're, you're only can talk about what you're involved with, but it just seems to me things have changed a little bit in the sense of like, at least for smaller groups, guys that are still road dogging it, 
doing the sprinter thing, maybe 30 shows in 34 days, something like that. Like the, the, the tours are, are, are kind of, there's, they're very gridded now. They're, they're, they're just certain periods of the year when there's going to be tours. And then there's other times where it's not. And, um, obviously like if you're going to take a big bus and go up into Canada with inflation now, I mean, the cost has gone up like $2,000 and I, you know, like little feet, like they're riding the, the coattails of a, an incredible, you know, reputation, Steve Earle, same way, tower of power, dead and company. But again, original music, where do you think, well, where, where do you think we're at at this point? I think it's an interesting time. And, and I mean, you're right on a lot of that. Um, you know, this year, I mean, because we, we had a few false starts, you know, June right. of 21, everyone's vaccinated. We went back out for a month of Masterson's dates, and it was stellar. Like, every show was, you know, um, there were, shows were selling well, lots of tickets, merch was selling well, and it was like, it just felt, we're back. And then we went to Nashville and geared up for two months of touring with Steve, and that started out, you know, it, it felt victorious, and, you know, we're all with all our friends, and we're rehearsing, and there's the bus, here's the crew, and and it was good for a few weeks, and then Delta hits. Right, right. And and then, you know, we we got through the summer, um, and, you know, we had one guy get sick and had to leave him in a hotel in Florida, Ricky uh, Ray Jackson, our steel player, and no one else got sick, you know, yay science and vaccination, you know. Absolutely. Um, and so then we get through that, and then... I guess Eleanor and I did some Jayhawks dates and those were cool. And and then we get to December and we're in New York again, um, making the, um, the Jerry Jeff record with Steve. And that's when Omicron hit New York. So I was in, I felt like we were in the epicenter for two sort of outbreaks and like 10 people I'd seen that weekend, like tested positive. And oh. like we were, you know, so, so now this year, you know, people are back out, but everybody's out. And I think one of the difficulties with touring right now is there, there are so many shows going on that even if you're a big music fan, you know, say you have seven shows roll through your town in a week, you're going to be able to afford to go to three of them. Right. If, That's you know. a good point. Yeah. So I think that, I think it's just really saturated and I think, uh, you know, so I hope some of that will level out. Let me ask you a question that you're, you're hundred, you know, better. you nailed it. How does it become less saturated? I mean, the fact of the matter is, before the pandemic, and I'm sure you guys felt well, you just described it. <clears throat> I mean, even the road dog, even my friends who were just trucking it, uh, you know, no one was getting rich, but people were busy, man. I mean, the people were working their tails off. It was very prolific. Wasn't it saturated then, too? Or have we have we just lost a lot of venues as well? So that now that there's this kind of supply and demand issue, I mean, I'm not an economist. I don't know what's going on, but I just no, know. Dude, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist. <laughs> I'm a high school dropout guitar player. Hey, no, but you know, you I, made a, you also made I a great point. Theories. Go, yeah, well, no, but the other thing I want you to riff on it, with your theories is just how how important it is to have strong momentum because you talked about these stops and starts. That's part of the other issue. Uh, is just the fact that. You get some momentum going, and then you get pulled back. Um, and now we're sort of <clears throat> we're we're in the land of the free now, but we're just saturated with everybody wants to tour, rightfully so. And yet, 
there's just I don't know if there's not enough venues or or what is going on, but there's something there that there needs to be some kind of course correction over time. And I think that I think it will, but I mean, people's interests change. So sure. I mean, uh, both fans and musicians, you know. So from a fan standpoint, some of these fans aren't coming back. Right. Um, they like Netflix. They've changed their habits in in two years. Um, you know, I uh, um, and also. I, I mean, also I mean, the older older population. I have to believe. You know, they, they're they are more susceptible, possibly. So they're 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 less likely to go out. Uh, well, see, yes, you're talking about people that come to see music like we like. Yep. Are are generally older progressives. That's right. Um, but. You know, I, I think just some of those people aren't coming back, and that's okay. You know, I mean, um, I I, uh, I don't think there'll ever be a shortage of great music to go check out. And, and Eleanor and I try to go see a lot of music here in LA when we're not working. I mean, I, I love going to a good show. Um, now that said, uh, when I said people's interests change, I think the pandemic had a, a change on us. I mean, we. We came out of this this pandemic, and I, like I said, we we were not worried about the finances too much. So we we fared better than a lot of people, and I don't ever want to brag about that because I know that some people really suffered. I mean, I know I, I have some very close friends that suffered absolutely because of it. Um, so I'd be remiss to brag, but you know, we had the largest break we'd ever had in our adult lives. We've been saying yes to absolutely everything and trying to be amiable since our first record deal. And I think that takes a toll as well. Um, so what we got a glimpse of in the pandemic was balance. And I've never been very good at that. Everybody <coughs> to a man or woman enjoyed having time off. Um, and then now it's just sort of, it's, it's, it is a brave new world out there. I, I, I wonder, um, you know, if you could talk, this is always a question I have, and it, it doesn't, again, we go back to this idea of <clears throat> labels or sort of trying to describe the music, but um, I just, you know, like you in, you're in L.A., and, uh, and I just wanted you to, I mean, Wes Montgomery or, you know, if he saw some, if he saw Chris Masterson with a guitar case on the street in New York City in the 1950s, he would stop and shake your hand and try to figure out, you know, just, you know, talk to you a little bit. But it was like, and let's be very clear, the cost of living wasn't as high. These cats were, uh, a lot. the the studios were were rocking. Uh, You know, you had the ability, music in my mind was seen... A musician was seen as a viable profession. It wasn't this whole idea of paying to play or playing for the door. And, you know, when I think about jazz specifically, uh, the music, a lot of the jazz musicians live here, but their music is consumed and the commerce of it is in Japan or in Europe. It's really not in this country. I just wonder if if you could talk about, you know, from a more of a macro point of view, uh, if you think that our society views musicians as a viable profession, or do they see music as a musician's gift to the world? Hmm, I only I, I I have to think 
Because, I mean, Steve uh, Earle's not, you know, you're not playing for the door with Steve Earle. I'm just, you know, you go see a lot of music. I mean, it's it's amazing, man, when you see, I don't need to tell you this, but it's like, I mean, if you're going to go on the road, you're not making money off the gigs. You're making it off the merch table. And you got to, if you're going to make any dough at all, you got to stay out for a month. I'm just talking about road dogs. It's really hard. So I just want. Oh yeah. yeah, no, I know. I mean, I, I, I mean, I know you know this. We, we feel like we kind of get to do both. Yeah. I mean, Eleanor and I have both, you know, been side musicians and and then do our own, you know, pursue our own endeavors. And like the start of this year was rough. I mean, shows were underselling, and you know, when we're out in the van, it feels like hand to hand combat. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, oh my God, I believe it is, man. And then, you know, but then you get on a, on a big bus tour and, and, you know, that has its own, you know, highs and lows. Um, I, I, but I don't know if young people think, and I don't want to be dismissive to anyone, think of like, this is a gift to the world. I mean, now we're in a, a world with where music is streamed and shown on YouTube and, you know, and a lot of cities don't have cool brick and mortar record stores. You're 100% right. Um, so people consume it different and that's not, that's not, that's just the reality um, of where we're at. You're right. That's reality. Yeah. And it's not, you know, I'm not going to be a, sound like a, I don't want to sound like a boomer. No. Ragging on Spotify. Look, if we all had horse and buggy dealerships and Henry Ford came to town, <laughs> we'd have to figure out how to evolve. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in some ways it's just sort of like, uh, it is what it is. It is what it is. It's it just, it's, it, you know, I look at you. You know, in the 1970s, you would have been one of these Lee Rittenauer, Fred Tackett, uh, Ben Benet. Uh, you would have been a studio shark and you would have been able to really sing for your supper. And I just, you know, it, it, to me, it's just one reason I continue to, uh, I will never stop my show until I really, uh, I mean, it'll go on forever, but I really fundamentally want um i just i I hope that our society because i mean spotify is a perfect example where i mean what is it you need you get fourteen thousand downloads you get like 10 bucks or so i mean it's kind of gotten a little bit outrageous whereas before the lee sklars and the danny korchmars and these guys are in great they they were just it was they were pros and i'm not saying that the studio scene was you know, there was about four dozen people that had it on lockdown, but it just, there was a lot, music was just, the significance of music dictated our culture, and that's sort of what I always want to get back to now, and I don't know because of all the distractions and the way we consume music, I agree with you, but I'm just sort of, you know, I I know that word fanatic is a dangerous word to use now, but I am a fanatic, and I really believe, like, that's what that's what Tom Dowd was, and that's what Jerry Wexler was, and all these A and R. Oh, man, I, I yeah. went to to um, last weekend. I went to the they did uh, the Big Star. You know, they did right, the yeah, one yeah, yeah. And and I'd never seen one. Eleanor played on one. Chris Damian had hired her, and she played the quartet on one. But I, I was off, and we got to go, and it was like it was so cool because Big Star is a great example of a band that never you know hit on the on a huge level, right? But I mean. They were like they were like the kinks of Memphis. Oh yeah, no, and, I mean that, that and, yeah, totally. And to be in this full theater in Los Angeles, I I, I was telling Eleanor or the friends we were out with, I was just like, and this is like 
I think every liner note reader in Los Angeles is here tonight. <laughs> and it was so heavy and it was so special and it was, there's such a community. And, and we used to get that in record stores. Right. You know, I, I, I grew up, you know, Cactus Records in Houston was one for me. And I still get that on wonder when I go to Amoeba here. And, um, and I, I love that you're hitting but, that. No, but I, but go ahead, continue. But I, but I, but I think that it is different when people have different priorities now and, and, that, and that's okay. That's just where we're at. And that's, you know, I, I still feel like I'm a fanatic cause I'm, I'm, I'm soaking in music all the time. Well, uh, I mean, I just want to say, I got to jam at it. We've just been cooking for 80 minutes. We got to do set two down there. I mean, I just had an absolute ball with you, but I do want to say, I do want to say, I would hope that you and Eleanor can make it to Tucson where I live. I'd love to see, there's plenty of good venues here to play. Uh, Yeah, no, we did. I mean, see, we did um, Hotel Congress in, was it March? Oh my God, dude. I was asleep asleep at the wheel. My, what the heck's going on? But that's one of the things that's going on right now. It's like, it's so hard right. for, you know, and we're, I mean, I would call us as our band, you know, at the bottom of the mid-level. I, I don't know. I love uh, that, dude. Bottom mid-level, know, dude. It's we're, great. We're yeah. doing hard. We have a team. <laughs> right. But then again, it's like you could try to, you know, someone tries to advertise for the tour and it gets blocked by some social media algorithm. And there's just so much out there. So, you know, I mean, I'm, I miss shows here in Los Angeles too. You know, it's, it's hard to get people's attention and, you know, even people that might like to come see you play. I mean, I'm not, I'm not cold calling people. I don't think someone that, you know, likes pink is going to want to come out to our concert at club Congress, but maybe <laughs> so. I, oh, no, you're right. It's really interesting. Uh, what 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 were you gonna say? Are the gate the gatekeepers? You want to riff on gatekeepers for a minute? I do because like well, you had mentioned secrets and I and I and right I, right Prote- hoarding. You know, you have five houses with Legos in them, and you don't even use two of the houses. You know, it's just the hoarding. Well, but I just have to like I have to think of some of my heroes and and now peers. You know, like um, my. I got my first gig out here and it was just in blues bands, but my friend Rick Holmstrom who plays with Mavis Staples, like he, he helped get me settled in out here. Mm. Um, Mm. I met, I met Steve Earl in about 2000 in Australia. And it was through our friend, Stephen Bruton, who's like, you you need to meet Steve. And, and, and he didn't need a guitar player at that time, but we became friends. And, um, and then, you know, Steve went on to not only hire my wife and I, but he, he went on to champion our band and our endeavors. Mm. Um, mm. When I met Shooter Jennings in New York in around 08, basically Shooter needed a New York band and called Neil, and Neil was the connector on all of that. Wow. And that's how I met Jeff Hill, who plays in Steve. Yeah, band. I was gonna. I, dude, I'm glad you brought up because that was just what I saw Hill playing in in that band with with you. I was like, that is cooking, man. And so, but 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 so like so my heroes and have been they've never been gatekeepers they share their connectors. Oh, I love and it, man. So I if I if there's something I could do for some if I you know I mean obviously you can't help everybody but you know if if there's someone someone that's knocking your socks off and you can help um, she or him I mean we got to do it and we got to do it as like as men in this industry you know we're in a different time where we you know need to be allies and and you know bring women, women engineers up and, and like, how can I be an ally? How can I like, 
you gotta you gotta give it away to keep it and so that's you know when you said secrets it was like man i don't feel like i know much but if i could share something that would help someone that would be the highlight of my day you just sent chills up my arm have you guys been to the one-stop fiddle shop before no where's that well that that was byron burline's old shop rest in peace that was his shop in oklahoma it's a it's a legendary store. If you don't, it, I'm, I'm surprised, Ellen. Maybe I'm surprised. I'm I'm, af- I'm shocked. You you're not you haven't. Been, yeah, the one stop fiddle shop. Um, but uh, you know that's just that's another thing on your on your bucket list. And uh, but yeah, man, let's let's find a way next time. Let's 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 figure out a way to link up. Maybe in person, do do a video uh, interview. But I I look forward to to connecting with you, seeing you on the bandstand, man. It's it. You just gotta. I don't know what the right you know, word is, but you know, it's, you're paying it forward and you don't forget about how those people, your, your, your heroes, your peers, how, how they made you feel just like a song. They're not going to necessarily remember what they said, but you walk out of there, you remember how you felt, you know, and that's really, no, no. And, and that happened years before, you know, Steve or any of that professional stuff with blues players in Houston, you know, this little albino kid and, in these blues bars with my dad and, and like, and people took me under their wing. I mean, you, and you know, and when you get to play with all these artists, it's almost like an apprenticeship in a way. I mean, I guess I'm getting paid, but you, 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 you never stop learning, you know? And, um, yeah, man, I, I'm excited about it all. It's still, and, and we're, we're working on touring less and doing more sessions at home. And, you know, I still love the road, but I, I'm sitting out here in my garden, and it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, the, and also that's a whole the road. I mean, as Peter Rowan said, the road can eat you alive. I mean, I think you've done your, you know, you, you can pick and choose, and if you have that luxury, then you're really, really fortunate. So, anyway, well, that's where it comes yeah. back to the balance and just trying to work on that. And I think that goes for anything life. Chris Masterson, such an honor, man. I'll, I'll get this up later tonight, but uh, keep doing it, man, and we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks for having me, man. And uh, yeah, let me know when it's up, and I'll, I'll I'll spread the word. Yeah, be cool, brother. Be cool. Rad. Take care, man. Later, man. Bye. Bye.